approaching the fact that life is, that we're mortal, to me is such an exciting conversation to have for all of us. It's of course one that we need to enter gently, but to me it's, it's such a rich and rewarding conversation. Like I often think about how people come into long-term care for a tour of long-term care, and I just so wish that we would say, welcome. We are so excited that you're come, you've come to see our facility today. And we want you to know from the time that your loved one or you enters, right, that we want to provide you or your loved one the best care possible. Right the way through from time of admission, right the way through death and following. I think we're starting to see those conversations more and more. Welcome to Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious situations and illness as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Dragon. What do you think of when you hear the word palliative? In this final episode of Season 1, Kath Murray discusses how the words and terms we use in serious illness are important. Words such as palliative that we use or avoid using are often linked to fear, death, giving up, and also hope, support, and quality of life. Listen while Kath, an exemplary nurse, author, entrepreneur, and international educator, shares insights and reflections about how language can open doors to a palliative approach to care that improves patient and family experience. In 2005, Kath Murray decided to be the change she knew to be needed in care and together with her husband founded a company called Life and Death Matters to provide palliative care resources and education that would support nurses and other healthcare workers to improve the care of people who were dying. Since then, with spirited persistence, she's been influencing a palliative approach to care for the seriously ill, not only in her community on Vancouver Island, but across Canada, the US, Latin America, and the world. Welcome, Kath. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. You have been and continue to be such an inspiration. A pleasure to be here, Pat. Thank you. So as we get started, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about your practice focus and and how that came to be. Well, so my the majority of my focus right now is on developing and delivering what I like to say are delicious and digestible resources, meaning user-friendly and engaging resources for personal support workers known across Canada also as healthcare assistants or continuing care assistants and for nurses and uh, introducing them to palliative care and providing just a solid introduction and foundational texts, workbook, podcasts, and videos, and then resources for the educators to help support them so they can best introduce their students to integrating a palliative approach. So that's the majority of my focus at this point. And so how did you get there? I sometimes say that I came to hospice nursing as a child. I was raised through my teens by my aunt, who was the master family caregiver. And we cared for family, friends, neighbors, 
And um, and I learned as a child then that when someone is sick or suffering, that you respond. And then when I came to hospice, though, I had the opportunity about when I was in my late 20s to work with Victoria Hospice, which was a very progressive, incredible hospice. And in my orientation, I will never forget hearing about the use of some of the medications in particular for respiratory congestion and and the thought that the suffering that I had seen in my dad as he was dying and as I held him in my arms as he was dying, very congested, maybe that could have been prevented. And then as I learned more about the use of opioids and realized that my uncle who died and lived his last months in severe pain, maybe that could have been prevented. And so I think within that was this deep desire to use education to help prevent suffering. Our focus is, of course, on the relational aspects, so the communication that we have with patients like you describe. So I'm wondering if we can focus a little bit more on uh, what you focus on in your resources for nurses. What is it that you've seen uh, in your experience and hearing from nurses that they need in terms of talking with patients and families? Well, when you asked me about this, I thought about, um, I kind of chuckled to myself about some of the things that have been important to me over the years about language. Recently, one of my grown children reflected on growing up in this home and how I would use the word died and dead. And she'd say to me, mom, it's passed away or passing away. And, um, and found that language kind of stark and harsh. And, and I remember in those early decades where I thought it was important to call death, death and not beat around the bushes, but, but call it what it is. And yet it's interesting to me now how there are times when I specifically use the term passed away because it just just seems softer. And for the person on the other end receiving it, it just seemed more appropriate. So that's been interesting to me to just note the difference in me over the years. I remember hearing um, Dr. Diane Myers talking about um, the use of the word palliative care. And she said, you know, we've been trying for decades to bring death into focus in the United States. And and it's not working. And and I think her suggestion was that it's okay to use the word supportive care instead of palliative care, which for some people definitely means the last weeks and months and means that to some people means that this is um, no, that one is no longer hoping for cure or hoping for a uh, longer time. I've just, I've noticed those um pieces in me. The the other one, though, that's very important to me is the change in the word palliative and the way that people use palliative to describe someone who is, in fact, actively dying. So they'll say, oh, he's palliative or she's palliative. Um, what they're really meaning is they're actively dying, they're imminently dying, um, or they're in their last weeks or whatever. And um, and I've been on such a 
um, mission to change that. So we do not label people as palliative. That's been very important to me within our our nursing world. We we often hear that. So this focus on language is so important. And I'd like to delve into that a little bit more. I have become increasingly aware of the language that I use when I'm talking with patients, students, my family, and how that might change based on the context. Uh, I've also noticed about what I'm comfortable with and not comfortable with, and I and I expect that also influences a lot of other nurses. So let's go back and pick up on the palliative piece because that's the that's a big overriding term that many people are afraid to say or say in certain circumstances or to hear. Can you talk about palliative, what it means, palliative care, and then a palliative approach? Sure. So to palliate is to cloak or to mask. And my understanding is that there was surgery done 100 years ago that they would use the word it's palliative. So the purpose of the surgery was not to cure someone, but was to cover or mask or take away a symptom. Um, when Balfour Mount went and studied with Dame Cecily Saunders in England, and he came back and um, realized that the word hospice didn't translate well into French. and I think in his ponderings, and I don't know, and I haven't read his his book, which would be interesting because I bet he might he might talk about this in more detail. But he reflected on the word palliative, and then he took the word care, and he put those two together, and so a type of care that aims to cover or mask or comfort. Um, so my understanding is that that is where we in North America and then globally started to use that phrase. And what was interesting is in the early years, I think in the early 90s in Canada, we used those two words to mean the same thing. So you had a hospice palliative care unit. You talked about hospice palliative care, where in the last um, 20 years, 15 years, we've seen there be more of a split. There always has been in the United States, but in Canada, we've seen more of a split where hospice encompasses the last, say, six months and following death and into bereavement and palliative care, the whole idea of how do we integrate palliative care early, upstream, perhaps from time of diagnosis, right through um, death and following death into bereavement. Yes. So that idea about an upstream approach uh, is the palliative approach to care or palliative care approach. And how do we then use that approach in any care anywhere? And I like it. So how I have defined that is a palliative approach is the integration and application of palliative care principles for people with any life limiting disease early in the disease process and across all settings. And that is an accepted definition now uh, in the academic world and in many centers, but it's not the understanding that most people in the public and many clinicians 
have about palliative. Have you seen that change, that language change in the nurses that you come in contact with? Or is there still uh, an idea that once you use the term, that that's a signal someone is dying? I think it is changing. I remember an experience I had back in about 2007. I was asked if I would develop a course on palliative care for people uh, living and dying with dementia. And I said, my first reaction was, oh, you know, thank you for the invitation, but I don't know if the palliative care world's ready to do that. I don't know if the dementia care world is ready to do that. And I don't know if I've got the time to do that. And then this incredible nurse came back to me a few months later and I said, okay, let me go and I'll have a day in the library in September and I will do some some research and just get my head around where the larger community is on this. And what was fascinating um, was that the research was there that dementia care principles and palliative care principles just dovetail beautifully together. And not only that, the research wasn't new. The research had been there for years that would would indicate um, best practice. One was similar to best practice and the other. And so we did then enter into this education project with this particular um, care home. And, And when I started doing it and started talking about this palliative care course, the lead nurse, who was just incredible woman, she said, Kath, you can't call it palliative care because here in this facility, palliative care means the last days. And um, then she came to um, the medical intensive course that Victoria Hospice offered. And while she was there, and I was helping teach that particular one, and while she was there, she said, um, Kath, it's different. When people come to hospice, they come there to die. But when people come to our facility, they come there to live. I said, oh, is that right? So what's your average length of stay? And I think hers was about 18 months. And I said, well, that's interesting. Our average length of stay, of course, is shorter than that. But we do have people that that live on our program that live longer than 18 months. And I said, and how many people have you discharged live from your facility in the last year? And I think she had discharged none. And I said, well, that's not interesting because I've just discharged two people. And so we talked about this. And then finally, after, as we continued in the research, she finally said, okay, we can call this a palliative care course. And then what happened was we changed culture. And so everybody in the um, building, everybody providing care and the receptionists and the plant staff and the um, kitchen dietary folks, everybody participated in this um, course and we changed the way that term was used. Um, So I think it happens bit by bit. Um, One of the most remarkable um, pieces that's that's helped all of us, I think, to to raise the topic. It was the research project, um, and maybe you can uh, clarify um, what year it was published. But the study with the the people with lung cancer and the two groups, the, the control group and the other group, and both groups had uh, both all all the people had the similar lung cancer. And they control both groups had good oncology care, but one group also had palliative care. And the idea was 
to look and see how palliative care affected quality of life. But in fact, what they found that was that palliative care not only affected quality of life, but in fact, people live two to three months longer, which to me was about the best PR for the word and the treatment of palliative care and helping people to say, no, our goal isn't necessarily to make people live longer, but in fact, good palliative care, people often have perhaps the energy to live longer. Yes, that was a, a landmark study. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about a nurse using the language of a palliative approach if a patient is not receiving specialist palliative care. I think in my conversations, nurses are often hesitant to use the term palliative or palliative approach unless that patient has a diagnosis and has been labeled palliative by a physician. Is palliative care specialist care? Mm, I think this is to me the one of the things that I love that's happening throughout the world. I hear the conversations in Mexico when we're working there and I read about it from Australia. I read about it in the descriptions of what's happening in Europe, um, in the United States and in Canada. And that is that is that whole idea that palliative care is something that all of us uh, need to be, that all, all of us need to be generalists with. We all need the basics of, of palliative care competencies. And then knowing that and having those basics, then hopefully we're more able to identify when someone does need specialist. I like the uh, suggestions out of Australia that 65% of us can be cared for just fine, thanks very much, by the generalist um, providing palliative care. And then another percentage probably just need a consult here and there from a specialist team. And then that there's a few, um, and I don't think that they've got a good number on that, whose um, needs are either the psychosocial needs or the physical needs are so acute that having ongoing support from a palliative care specialty team is important. So the implications for nurses in all of this um, are that they could be suggesting a palliative approach in the care of patients with chronic progressive life-limiting illness, those who are not labeled as actively dying. And I'm wondering how that might change communication with those patients. What difference would it make? Well, I wonder if it would also help to open the doors to the fact that we're all mortal. So on the one hand, uh, one of my favorite um, cartoons about this is a woman and a child looking at um, two doors and one says palliative and the other says curative and they're perplexed and they don't know which one to go through. And then um, next to it is another is the same image of the mother or the woman and the child, but both doors palliative and curative open at the same time. And, <laughs> and there's light and brightness behind that door. Um, and that to me is a good image of showing that 
that we can walk alongside. Um, so I'm not sure that I've got I've answered your question directly, but um, I do like that as one way to open the topic. Okay, that's a that's a lovely image to have. And I think what you're saying is it doesn't have to be one or the other. Yeah. But we do make it seem like that so often. So many nurses don't feel like they have permission to venture into that more holistic or discussion around mortality or the possibility of decline unless that label is there. Well, yeah, I guess so. Um, I think I have one of your questions is about difficult conversations. And I think there's something that I've always liked about leaning into those conversations. Um, so in that way, uh, and I don't know that I've ever given myself permission to say that for me, those are rich conversations to enter into and approaching the fact that life is that that we're mortal to me is such an exciting conversation to have for all of us and and it is of course one that we need to enter gently um but but to me it's it's such a rich and rewarding conversation and and usually i don't i don't get the i don't get the feelings of shock like i often think about how people come into long term care for to to have a tour of long-term care. And I just so wish that across the board, we would say, welcome. We are so excited that you're come, you come to see our facility today. And we want you to know that from the time that your loved one or you enters, right, that we want to just provide you or your loved one the best care possible right the way through from time of admission, right the way through death and following. I think we're starting to see those conversations more and more. Yes. So if we can swing back to something that you said at the beginning of our conversation, and that was around the use of terms like supportive care. So what are the other uh, you know, why has that happened? I guess that's because uh, we don't want people to be afraid of the care um, based on the terminology that we're using. So supportive care is another word we use to mean a palliative approach. I, I'm, I'm thinking about comfort care, that, that one yeah, uh, sometimes. Care, so we'll sure. say comfort care, supportive care, uh, also you know, pain what's symptom so management. Those are those are all terms that we uh, in healthcare often adopt, so that patients aren't afraid of the fact that death is imminent or or an outcome. That it seems like a friendlier approach, um, and yet at some point conversations probably happen along the road in that person's journey related to the fact that that death could be a possibility in the shorter term. I'm wondering if we could go back again to your your comment about using the term dead. What are the other terms that people use or do you know of any? Oh, uh, sure. There's so to describe, so let's just think about some of those. 
kicked the bucket, <laughs> passed over, gone home. And interesting though, that for in the, you know, 30 years ago, we rolled our eyes at those and said, let's, you know, use the real words. And yet the um, African-American people talk about passing over as being, I, I think, as a metaphor for going across the waters and going home to their homeland. And um, the First Nation, the Indigenous people, use the term journey and journeying home. And so in that context, we say, oh, culturally, we need to use that language. But interesting that we don't ascribe the same space to terms like passed away or passed over or passed passed away or passing on. Um, if that's been, say, um, I don't know if that's come from um, some of our British roots or European roots or whatever, um, in trying to just be more gentle, well, why aren't we giving ourselves the same credit for for following our cultural norms? Why are we trying to change it for one section and then honoring it for another group? Interesting. Yes, um, I've had many conversations around this, and um, one thing that's that I've been told is that sometimes people, don't understand if the language, if it's English as a second language, there may be some misunderstandings about what some of these terms mean. So perhaps the message that you're trying to say is that we need to be alert to meanings that have for the people that we're caring for. Is that is that what I'm hearing? I think so. There was times when people said, oh, I take off my name tag that says so-and-so palliative care team. I think that there's probably times for a certain person on a certain day that you might do that. But on the other hand, I always have thought, I'll leave it on because it's just one more time that someone gets to hear that term and gets to maybe decrease the fear of it. Yeah, so it's an educational opportunity <clears throat> to sort of explain what it is. So we've talked a lot about language and terminology. One of the uh, roles that nurses have sometimes is to tell a family, uh, talk to a family that some or inform a family that a person has died. And I'm wondering uh, if you had some reflections around approaches to that. I think I'm just always in the moment. And so if someone is, if I'm at the bedside and someone is taking their last breaths, then I usually am probably saying something like, it looks like he's going now, or it looks like he's just about there, and it looks like he's gone. So that's probably one of the terms. Another one that I've used in the process is he's declining or he's changing. Um, but we often use the word changing and declining, and people don't necessarily know what that means. Right. I remember a research story study, probably done with iPanel, probably part of the um, integrating a palliative approach, nursing evidence and leadership, the iPanel research out of UVic. And one of the stories was told of a woman who... Uh, she and her husband brought the husband's mother in to the hospital. And um, then the husband left to go on a trip to do with work, I think. 
And the woman stayed with her mother-in-law for the next several hours. And people kept checking in with her. Are you doing okay? How are you doing? Are you doing okay? And it wasn't until after the mom-in-law died that the daughter-in-law went, oh, that's what they were meaning. They were asking, are you okay? Because she's dying. And she didn't know that the mom-in-law was dying. The nurses obviously knew, other people knew, but nobody called it. And in that way, I think it's an example of how we need to use words. We need to describe what it is that's happening. And, And yes, we need to be gentle, but we also need to be clear. One of our docs once said, I think she was talking to a specialist who said, you know, I told her, the patient, that she was dying. And I think our palliative care doc said something to the effect of, did you tell her six times? And and I'm not sure that I'm right on that, but something along that line. And, you know, sometimes we need to hear something a number of times before we really clue in. And I think of something happened that happened in the lives of one of my kids. And I didn't understand the implications of it. And finally, this healthcare provider, I think, kind of took me by the collars and said, Kath, da-da-da-da. And oh, oh, then I understood it in a whole new way and understood the the needs and the changing needs of that particular child. And um, if, if we are gentle sometimes and too gentle, sometimes families don't get it. And what I find fascinating is the research indicates that Patients and families, they think we know, they think we know that we've got the knowledge and that that if something important is happening, like someone's dying, then of course we would tell them and that we know what's happening and we know the answers to different questions and, and that we'll tell them if it's important for them to know that they trust us to do that. Where meanwhile, we wait for them to ask the questions. Um, so there's something called the Forbes question prompt sheet, and they identified some of the questions that families often have or patients and families often have. And so to be able to use that and show that to patients and families and say, do you have any of these questions or do you have any other questions? Oh, no, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, I'd like to know that. Or yeah, I'd like to know that. Or yeah, I have been thinking that, but I thought I was I thought I was all alone in in wanting to know that. And I thought it was a strange question to ask. No, nothing strange. Go ahead, ask away. That's very helpful. Uh, The Forbes question question? prompt sheet. Prompt sheet. Okay. We did the explanation of that for one of our Life and Death Matters texts. And um, I, I think what's really important is to just give people ideas of questions they might have. Versus assuming they have have none. Versus assuming they have none and assuming that if they had any questions, they'd be asking them because, yeah, research shows that that they're assuming that we're going to come and tell them when we know something. Yes, I I think that that's that's happened also um, in my family where I assumed that the cues that were I was getting that I was picking up was being were being picked up by others, and that wasn't the case. Um, and even even using terms, um, assuming that they that was common knowledge, mm-hmm. but in fact it wasn't. 
Yeah. So we really need to be checking out our own assumptions about what people know, understand, or have questions about and offer them maybe some openings for that. I think that's what I'm hearing from you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of my favorite questions are things like, you know, what's your thought? What do you think that's happening? What do you think is happening? What have you noticed? What changes have you noticed in the last year, eight months, six months, four months, two months, six weeks, four weeks, two weeks? And as people describe, then they almost they paint a picture for themselves. So I like that one. And then another one is just, you know, what do you what are you thinking is happening? And what are you thinking in terms of timing? And um and it's fascinating because sometimes they're where they are is completely different than what my um, estimate is. And so how nice for me to know before I start sharing ideas of how long I think someone might have or just wanting to prepare someone for the fact that death is coming sooner than later how nice if I know that they're thinking six months and I'm thinking six days, not yes. necessarily six days, but you know, I'm they're thinking in months, I'm thinking in days or even hours and they're still way here. And then you go, okay, we've got a lot of work to do to help someone get here. And, and our, my hope is that when we speak clearly and when we have those conversations, that it's possible that we can decrease some of the surprise factor. I like the idea that that realizing that a loved one is dying is like peeling an onion. You, you peel a layer and then another layer and another layer. And um, and I I do like that that idea that it takes bit by bit by bit. Um, and we're there to help bit by bit by bit. Those are helpful, practical things that we could all be integrating. So thanks very much for that, Kath. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts around how it is that we can find space to actually think about this or to have these conversations with our patients. How, how do you do that? What What helps you to be able to not react to questions or observations that you make, but to be thoughtful in how you use language, I guess, to to talk, even in those stressful moments. Well, Pat, I think I need to acknowledge the fact that I am not working as a nurse on a huge, busy medical surgical specialist unit with everything flying every which way. And and so I have, in the interactions I have with um, people, I usually have a bit more space. However, having said that, I think that some of the building blocks for these conversations happen with a touch and a, a glance and a wink and a squeeze of a hand and that those things those little things help to build relationship of trust so that when we need to have conversations that that there's more of a trust there and i don't think that those things all take lots of time 
And so then when those conversations need to happen, I think that the doors, the, the, the trust is trust is there and the way is more paved to having those conversations. Yes, that sounds uh, like real world advice. And perhaps one of the things to take away is to value those things that we often say we don't have time for, but maybe doing actually when you're talking about the seconds that it takes for that glance, etc., or hand that, that that those are meaningful or can be very meaningful and therapeutic. Uh, they may not be understood by checklists um, around around work, but that that is part of the therapeutic work. Of, of nurses. And, so thanks for raising that. And then the other thing is, I think that people talk about difficult conversations and meaningful conversations and challenging conversations. I don't, I don't know what I think about the word difficult or challenging, yeah. um, but I like the idea of meaningful and intimate conversations. And, and I think to me, this is, this is just, this is the stuff that makes the world go round. This is the the sweetness. This is the the reason that that I came into nursing was to have real conversations with real people at difficult times. And yeah, I'm I'm certain that I'm not always brilliant at it or inspired or inspiring, but there to me that it's the meaningful part of of nursing and. Um, and I'm so grateful for those that I have wor- worked alongside that have that I have witnessed their work and they have witnessed mine. And we have come to places of maybe being comfortable in the uncomfortable. And maybe just because I know how bad things can be if we don't have those conversations, that it's to me, it's worth whatever to get in and have the conversations. I can't think of a better place to leave off, Kath, than that rich reflection. And I'm so grateful for all your insights and sharing of experience and wisdom today. Uh, how can people be in touch with you if if they wanted to oh, access thank Life you. and Death Matters? So our website is lifeanddeathmatters.ca and you can send message there and our resources are there and our texts include integrating a palliative approach, essentials for personal support workers. And then the one for nurses is um, essentials in hospice and palliative care, a practical resource for every nurse. I'm so grateful to all of you, the listeners who have tuned in to Radical Nurse Talk over the 10 episodes in our first season, and to the 10 guests who generously gave up their time to share so many important ideas, experiences, evidence, and opportunities for future practice, a huge thank you. Please continue to share and listen to this series as you await season two, which will be launched later in January 2024. And if you have ideas about a topic or a guest, we'd love to hear from you. Send a note to RadicalNurseTalk at gmail.com or a note from any of the social platforms on which we connect. 
The producer-editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos-Foley, social media by Amy Strachan. And if you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. In the meantime, have a radical conversation in your practice. It can change lives.